Dr. Kamona, you have a really interesting background and journey, I think, in terms of your work as a police officer, a combat medic, a nurse, a public health administrator, a paramedic, and a physician, and then not to mention a politician as well. How do you think this multidimensional background uh, served you well in your role as a healthcare leader? Well, it, it, it opens my eyes to different levels of society, and I, I, the only uh, exception I would take, I never considered myself a politician, probably why mm -hmm. I wasn't very successful there, just because I, I feel that uh, often you have to uh, subordinate uh, your own ideals and interests. If not, you know, uh, you, you can't survive in certain these political environments, as we see with the tribalism that's going on today. So... Mm -hmm. um, but I think all of the experiences in in my life have made me a better person, uh, you know, from uh, being a poor kid myself and, uh, you know, growing up in an inner city, parents who were immigrants, uh, who spoke uh, Spanish as a first language, many mm -hmm. uh, health disparities, the social determinants of health, and probably there's no better education than having to walk in those shoes for part of your life and really understand what a lot of the world struggles with every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely, completely. And so, you know, I think being Surgeon General confers a really unique positionality because you can affect public health and policy really on a very large scale. And there have been two, I think, truly landmark Surgeon General reports defining the modern era of public health. And one of those was, of course, the 1964 report linking smoking with dangerous health outcomes. And the other, I think, was the report that you issued as Surgeon General in 2006 regarding the health effects of secondhand smoke. Uh, can you talk a bit about how and when you first became interested in looking at the issue of secondhand smoke exposure? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, during my four-year tenure as Surgeon General, there were a number of Surgeon General communications, uh, calls to action, reports. Certainly mm -hmm. the secondhand report may, may be characterized as one of the most important because of the global effect it's had at uh, alerting people to the deleterious health effects of secondhand smoke. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a tough report to get out because we stuck to the science as Surgeon Generals do. And of course, when you try and intersect the science with politics and mm -hmm. special interest groups, then it often becomes very difficult. So that report took several years to get out because of numerous attempts to retract uh, statements in there that were true based on science to dilute the effect uh, this was tobacco industry and others, and eventually, you know, what a Surgeon General is supposed to do is speak truth to power, mm -hmm. and we don't have policy, but we should inform on policy. And so um, we persisted, and we won, but there were many attempts to derail us, delay us, uh, mm -hmm. prevent me from speaking publicly about this problem, uh, because there was a myth out there that was purported by the tobacco companies that secondhand smoke was simply a nuisance that it wasn't mm -hmm. harmless, that go to a smoke-free area, and all of that was false. So, uh, you know, healthy young ladies who were pregnant, who were near a smoker, your baby, your fetus is taking in bad stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. People who live with die sooner, have more complications, and in effect have the uh, same disease patterns uh, as, as smokers. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were adamant in our pursuit of the truth and ultimately prevailed, and we're very proud that it had a global reach to mm -hmm. uh, many, many countries around the world to address this issue and have true smoke-free areas and then to begin to ban tobacco use altogether. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the reasons the report was such a significant document was that by highlighting secondhand smoke exposure as a public health issue, it spelled out a need for indoor smoking bans. And I wonder, did you have any trepidations or concern about releasing the report with regard to critics who might have been worried about the adverse economic effects of indoor smoking bans on small businesses? Yes, I mean, I, I believe that um, I didn't have any concerns, but I was sensitive to the fact that there you know, many people in society, uh, for instance, the restaurants and bars who were concerned and said, oh, my gosh, you know, we, uh, we'll, we'll lose a business if we don't have smokers in here. And, of course, the, the challenge comes down as a Surgeon General to weigh the risk, the individual risk of the individual uh, and the right of the individual to do something versus the collective right of society to not be polluted and be sick because of your individual right. And so uh, when we did, we worked closely with New York City, with Mayor Bloomberg and the, the uh, health director there at the time, Health Commissioner Tom Frieden, and we had data to that, in fact, uh, by by taking smoking out of many of the restaurants, for instance, that the tax revenue increased. And, in fact, more people came into the restaurant because it was a non-smoking facility. So all of those theories that would hurt business proved to be untrue. And, in fact, it helped business because mm -hmm. there are people that would go into those places because people smoke. But it was a very difficult time because um, uh, it became very contentious. It became very partisan. And mm -hmm. uh, yet... Um, you know, we stuck to our guns and the report came out and we did the right thing because mm -hmm. the Surgeon General has to rise above the political fray. Your job is to protect, promote, and advance the health, safety, and security of the United States. You don't make policy, but you inform on policy. And mm -hmm. when people try to rationalize or minimize what the Surgeon General says or, you know, not even consult the Surgeon General, I think mm -hmm. that's bad for society. And, uh, those are challenges we have today as the position of Surgeon General has been diluted, has been made uh, more a, a position that is um, not one that somebody earns after years of experience and, and earned the title of Admiral or the rank of Admiral and title of Surgeon mm -hmm. General as a public health officer. And, you mm -hmm. know, they become, they become patronage positions. And that's unfortunate that we Again, it's not. Um, this is not a criticism of any individual that's in the job. Right. It's a criticism of the political manipulation that's allowed people to take this job who haven't earned the right to have the job. And you know, they come in and do the best they can. But you know, they, they, every every administration we see further and further marginalization of the office of the Surgeon General, diminishment of a budget, and really becoming a political spokesperson for a given party. And again, mm -hmm. I know that the young men and women who have been in that position do the best they can, but it becomes increasingly more difficult, and the public should uh, be outraged at that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, you served as 17th Surgeon General from 2002 to 2006 under the Bush administration, which was not necessarily all that receptive to the idea of federal dollars being allocated towards embryonic stem cell research. Um, which now, you know, the landscape of medicine is really changing with research in regenerative medicine. Um, was that an issue at the time that you had wanted to be able to speak out about? Well, I did speak out about it, and, and I spoke out about a number of issues. Remember, this wasn't only stem cells. It was abortion. There was Plan B, mm -hmm. the morning after. There was mm -hmm. bioterrorism. The list is endless of things that become things that, that you look at through the lens of a scientist or a physician, and mm -hmm. then as soon as you put the 
that political sphere, they become partisan. Mm-hmm. And so stem cells, I give great credit to uh, President Bush at the time because he was receiving a lot of pressure from his party to outlaw stem cells for reasons that really didn't make any sense, that babies were being killed. And, you know, we pointed out that, you know, there, you know, there were thousands of frozen embryos that were being used. There was no babies being killed and so on but that there was a unique scientific opportunity here to advance science and help people by mm-hmm. better understanding stem cells clinically. But mm-hmm. the president, I must say, uh, struggled with this, but he listened to not only me but some of my colleagues in mm-hmm. government and uh, divided he find a, uh, what we might call dividing the baby. He said, Let, let's fund the cells that we have in place now, but let's not fund any more for a while as we work this out. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, the point we did that, and there was about 80 stem cell lines that were funded. We 60 were contaminated, so we ended up with 20 or 20 something stem cell lines that could be used mm-hmm. by scientists. But within a couple of years, that point became moot because scientists learned how to manipulate stem cells and change them in the, in, into forms that they needed, right. where we didn't have that initially. So that was it was a tough time because again, a scientific issue which became very partisan, and the scientific discussion was lost as each party tried to blame each other for things that weren't scientific. Mm-hmm. Completely, completely. So this idea of sort of watering down of the science because of competing ideological or theological or political interests, particularly oh, in yes. this current era of alternative facts, are you still worried about that? I'm more worried about it today. We see it uh-huh. with uh, environmental issues. We see it with health issues where these narratives are generated that make no sense of all. Narrative facts are just false facts or quite actually lies many times. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that there are health implications. Even back when I was, we tried to get the smoking report out, I had to submit drafts to various high levels of government for review. And special mm-hmm. interest groups would come. I was very emphatic. Smoke, secondhand smoke kills. And mm-hmm. people would scratch that out and say, well, why do you have to say that? Can't you say something lesser? I said, what's lesser to death? I said, right. it kills you. If, if you're exposed or you smoke, eventually this will kill you or, or will cause chronic diseases that will eventually kill you. And so those, those were contentious points with the watering down. But in, in, in all of these scientific things, if you look at global warming today, well, really, there's one side arguing it's a, it's a hoax politically. The other side arguing that actually it is true. And the fact of the matter is, we know the world, the earth, is warming, and we can argue how much humans contribute. But to say that they don't contribute at all and it makes no difference is absurd. It's just yeah. absolutely absurd. Okay? So, so what happens again is you have science that becomes partisan, and one mm-hmm. side overstates the case and one side denies the case at all, and we, the public, suffer because of that. And it's, it's yeah. not only it, it is so many of those topics that are there, and really that's the value of the Surgeon General to be mm-hmm. the nonpartisan spokesperson because we're not the Surgeon General of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. You're the doctor of the nation. You speak truth, and you inform on policy, and when necessary, speak truth to power. And mm-hmm. of course, politicians are like that because they have a preconceived notion of what they need to do based on the input from their special interest groups and constituents and so on. And the, the more we allow the Office of the Surgeon General to be marginalized and minimalized, then mm-hmm. that, that true scientific voice that speaks truth, scientific truth to power, is, is gone. 
and, mm -hmm. uh, and we, you know, the last, you know, last few Surgeon Generals that, you know, they, they hardly have a voice anymore. Their office is restricted. They have no budget, and often they're just directed to go out and give a talk about something and then back in the office. These are, you know, this is a position that's very important. It was started back in 1798 by mm -hmm. the, um, by, by the uh, president, then President Adams, uh, as the country was growing, and it's changed over a couple of hundred years, or eventually be called, called in the early 20th century Surgeon General. But the, the, the concept of having a nonpartisan physician scientist who has great experience, who, you know, is essentially it's like a, a tenured professor, okay, mm -hmm. that has earned the right to come up through the public health service and achieve the rank of admiral and a title of Surgeon General. That's an important position. But when we minimalize it or marginalize it for the benefit of politicians, that's not good. And right. the public then is an effective spokesperson and advocate for truth, not fake mm -hmm. news, but the truth behind science. 